love riding my bike. I love running. I don't care what they think about it. I love it. At that point, when I knew I was going to win, chills just went up and down my entire body. I don't believe there are any good or bad foods. Food is food. I still feel so passionate about getting that record that I'm like, I'm just going to do it. As an athlete, I was like, what's my story or what's your story? What can you learn from it? And what can you teach people? Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. This is a very special episode coming to you on Kona Thursday here. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I am with my co-host Haley Chura for this recording, but if you are listening to this on the day the podcast drops, our Thursday normal day, you are listening while Haley is in Kona racing. I'm trying to think she's probably, oh, she's probably just waking up actually potentially. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> when this drops. Yeah. Time difference. The magic of time differences. Yeah. I probably am not racing. Well, if they're listening in the morning, not racing yet. If they're listening later in the day, I might be like actively racing. Yeah. So make sure you tune in to all of the coverage. I don't know. I'm sure it's on Facebook watch, right? Iron Man watch or something. Um, like the cameras, the live thing. We're going to be watching Haley come out of the water first. It's going to be so exciting. And <laughs> or fifth, fifth could be great too. There's a lot of good swimmers this year. I'm actually excited about that. Um, it's going to there, be fun there. You are going to have a little pack to swim with, and that is, it, it's going to be fun to spectate, but make sure if you're listening on Thursday, you're tuning into that. We also have another live feisty uh, special Kona edition podcast that they have been dropping all week on the iron women feed. So there is another coming out today if it hasn't already. So make sure you also, you know, you can pass some of the time while we're waiting for Haley to eat her oatmeal and get into that ocean, um, and start the race. Uh, do you eat oatmeal pre-race Haley? This is I do. Yes. Me. You're like What's making me a little yeah. bit nervous. Oh, no. like, I'm like, I mean, we are pre-recording this obviously. And, um, yeah, I'm like thinking about that, that race morning breakfast, like trying to get that oatmeal down. And then when you say like, Oh, getting, I mean, I actually, uh, again, I'm in Tucson when we're recording this. Um, I'm staying with your athlete, Lauren, who's also racing. And we actually, we were showing one of her friends, what the Kona coverage, like broadcast looks like. And they were, we were like watching it from like 2017 and they were showing the swim start and both Lauren and I were like getting chills. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then we're like, okay. Her friend, Alicia, who's also her physical therapist. We're like, we have to stop this now because we're getting like too anxious. Um, but we're like, that's what it looks like go to Facebook, watch it. So yeah, you still get chills even watching it like five-year-old coverage. I love it. I love it. No, I think, yeah, just even saying the word oatmeal actually like gives me pre-race anxiety because that is like, I don't eat it normally except for pre-race, but that's funny. Um, so I think that's all of our housekeeping. We will be back next week with a post-race debrief and normal catch up on all of the things, um, with Haley, but we are just helping everyone pass the time today with a episode. We don't want to leave anyone hanging. So we're doing a special mailbag episode and we have several questions here. Thanks to everyone for sending in some good questions. And I think we're just going to jump right in. Haley, are you ready to go? I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm like, I'm like in maximal answer question mode. <laughs> Perfect. I, I didn't know that was the setting on, but I yes, I just decided <laughs> it was. So, okay. Question number one, it comes from Maria and she got to meet you at us. She got to meet us at Indian oh. Wells, which I'm assuming might've been you, unless it was 28. No, when you and I raced there oh, together. Yeah. Okay. Wait, I do remember this actually. This, oh, this is funny, man. 
full circle. I love it. Maria, you're still racing, but I think Maria was living in Chicago when she met us probably because she just recently moved from Chicago to Cuernavaca, Cuerna, Cuernavaca, Cuernavaca, Mexico. Whew. And she's training for an Olympic distance triathlon in Acapulco. I know how to say that one guys, um, has a couple questions. So tips for training in a hot and humid race. She's used to Chicago weather and tips for training on a treadmill versus outside because she's not quite comfortable running outside safely and like, you know, comfortable with the environment yet to run safely outside on her own. So these are very timely questions for, or at least the first one is for Haley, you've been, you relocated to Tucson to do a little heat prep, um, for yourself before Kona. So what other thing, and this wasn't like a, you didn't go out, you know, it's not like you had been heat training and doing things for like months and months. So kind of what has been your protocol here in the last like month or so that you have used to get ready for a hot and humid race? Yeah, this is very timely. Um, I, I can relate to Maria a little bit being, you know, her saying she coming from Chicago, going to a race in Mexico and very different climate. So yes, you have option one, which is what I did where I like relocated and I didn't, yeah, I didn't do it too. I, I like being home. I like cooler temperatures. That is how I'm happiest. And so that's why I live where I live. So I didn't go out a ridiculous amount of time before, but I do think, I think I've had all I've had like two weeks in Arizona. And so that has given me time to do some work, uh, outside in the heat. And so I will say I kind of have eased into it. So when I first got here, I, one of my days, I like would run long early in the day when it was cooler, but it was still pretty warm for me. And then I've gotten to the point where actually this past week, I purposely did a run, you know, later in the day I've done runs at like noon, um, carrying a lot of water or having sag available because it's still really, really hard. And you think about most races, you have an aid station. So even if you don't have, or you aren't able to carry water, or if you don't have someone, you can set up an aid station for yourself, you know, stash some bottles and do out and backs. It's not, you know, the most exciting, but it is effective. And that way you are working on that heat management. Um, and practicing that because that is something you can practice. Like no matter if you're good in the heat, bad, the heat, you can do heat management. You can set up an aid station for yourself and practice like every mile or every kilometer or every two kilometers, whatever the aid station distance is in your race, um, having access to fluids. And that is something that I would, I would strongly encourage anyone to do. If you are not able to be in a warmer climate, uh, I mean, I know she's in Mexico now, so maybe she is, but I think you, you can do some, you know, I think even just if you have a bathtub, um, do like sit in a bathtub after training, uh, in, you know, with the door closed. So it's kind of steamy and do just some heat acclimatization that way. I have done that in the past. If you have a sauna, maybe sauna, but I think you have to be pretty careful with that. Like I would consider it a hard workout, like just sitting in the bathtub. And I would start with like 10 minutes and maybe work up to a maximum of 30. So we're not talking a crazy long amount of time, but you don't want to be competitive. If you start feeling bad, um, get out, but I would usually do it, you know, maybe two weeks before the race, uh, do like seven days of after your last training session, getting into a hot bath and again, 10 minutes, you'll, you'll feel plenty warm and just like, you, you get a physiological adaptation from, I think it, you know, just being in that warm climate, 
but it's also, you kind of get used to being uncomfortable and warm. And so I think that if you are not able to get to a hotter, warmer climate, you can do that. But again, it's all a trade-off. It is a trade-off on how, how much time you have. If you have time to do that, if you have access to a bathtub or a sauna, or if you have, um, you know, you just, again, if you're really, really busy, you don't want to be doing that at 8 PM. So if that's how your life schedule is, don't do it. What I would focus on more is even in a cooler climate, like focus on that heat management. So like doing runs where you have an aid station, um, and just focus on like pouring water on yourself, that kind of thing. Maybe not doing that in training, but like planning for that, because I do think that you can do a lot, even on race day, even if you are not acclimatized at all, you can just take those extra 15 to 30 seconds when you're going through aid stations on the bike, on the run, pour water on yourself, cool off. Um, we've talked many times on here about how I carry a bottle when I run, which I am planning to do in, even in Hawaii, um, you know, run with a bottle just so that I am always, always have access to fluids to either drink or pour on my head. So, um, that was a very long winded answer. Do you have anything that you want to add? I think you nailed it, Haley. That was really good. Um, I will, will roll into the second part of her question though, which was tips for training on the treadmill versus outside, which is also a great question for the both of us as we are treadmill lovers. I think you and I both, mm -hmm. and I would say like my first tip for people who want to run on the treadmill is like, don't overthink it. Right. Like, don't worry about the numbers on the treadmill, like oftentimes if I'm getting people onto the treadmill for stuff, their first times, I like actually very much encourage putting a towel over the speed if you can. And like, not even really thinking about it and trying to like use it just blindly as if you were running outside and you just kind of adjust the speed to be like, what feels like what I would be running at an effort outside. Right. So like doing that and just not getting super absorbed in like, oh, well, usually I would be running, you know, nine minute pace. If I was running this run outside, I bet. So I'm going to run nine minute pace on the treadmill, right? Because it is different. So just trying to get in tune with kind of the perceived effort of it and the feeling of it, I think is, is helpful. Um, but the best thing I think for treadmill running is mixing it up with some workouts. Right. And, um, that can be something like if you have access to one of like a fancier treadmill, sometimes they have the ones where you know, it like simulates hills for you. Um, and you kind of like, if it's a really fancy one, it will have the video screen even, and you can like video, like run in New Zealand today. Right. And do the hills and just like set the speed at six miles an hour. And it kind of adjusts incline for you to mix it up. Um, those are, I think are great ways to like help mix it up, but say you have like the most basic treadmill in the world and you don't have something like that. Um, take the time maybe to, if you don't have a coach writing your workouts, like Take the time to think through, you know, what is the point of this session for you and what are just some ways to break it up, right? And if it is just an easy run, maybe then you're running a constant pace, but like every five minutes you go up half a percent to like 2% and then you go back down, right? Or something like that, right? Just kind of mix it up with the incline and the speed options. Um, I like to kind of keep speed constant as I go up to like two, two and a half percent. And then when I come back down, maybe I give my speed a couple clicks more. Cause I like kind of trick my mind into thinking I'm running downhill then a little bit, but again, like it doesn't have to be a workout just because you're on the treadmill for an easier run. Um, and then for workouts themselves, like 
you know, you can definitely simulate a track workout or something like that on the treadmill. Um, and again, just, I try to encourage people not to get super set on having to run a certain pace because they're on the treadmill, right. Especially, um, you know, if you're depending on your gym situation, those treadmills might not have been calibrated accurately in a very long time. And, you know, nine miles an hour at that treadmill might feel very different than your Chicago treadmill did at nine miles an hour. So again, just kind of focus on how it should feel and things like that for the workouts. And then go in with a workout, you know, in mind. So if you wanted to do a progression run, kind of, um, say like, okay, like go in and don't leave it to a whim to be like, you know, maybe I'll do 10 minutes, maybe I'll do 15 minute increments or whatever. Be like, no, today is my one hour treadmill run. And every 10 minutes I'm increasing the pace, you know, and that's like the plan. And then, you know, you start it, I don't know, six miles an hour and try and go up two or three clicks each 10 minutes and make it, you know, that way it does. I find, I don't know, maybe my mind is very simple, but I find that like passes the time so fast because my mind is tricked into every 10 minutes, like restarting the the workout essentially. Right. And it's like, okay, now I only have to make it through 10 minutes and then I only have to make it through 10 minutes again. So I think that really helps for the treadmill. Um, and then I think just, yeah, I think the variety is as much as you can add some variety with incline is just really good. Um, because obviously the treadmill will take away some of the kind of like lateral motion that you get outside running on the roads that you might not think you're getting like, as you're kind of, you know, stepping around things or stepping up on a curve or down from a curve or things like that, you know, like you do get, if, I mean, trail runners obviously get quite a bit of it, but even on the road, you're getting some lateral motion. And a lot of that does kind of go away when you're on a treadmill. So maybe even adding in some basic strength with like bands or something easy like that, um, before or after your session to make sure those stabilizer muscles are still getting used a little bit is, is helpful. Um, and then just playing with the incline too a little bit. So, and again, it doesn't have to be super crazy, but I think just getting in a little bit of variety to make sure all of your muscles are kind of, you know, simulating like they would be outside. I think helps the time pass and will make it effective tool for you. And it's a very effective tool. I love it when people love the treadmill. Yeah. Have you ever done Zwift on the treadmill? I just like I recently found not. out that, yeah, I, I haven't either, but, um, since I've been in Arizona, I've been able to run on a couple of different treadmills. They're like very, very fancy and they have like Bluetooth or something. And, um, I was Googling like how I think it will, you just use your phone and it will like, oh. if you have like a fancier treadmill, but, um, I imagine then it's like cycling where they probably have different group runs, that kind of thing. That could be a fun option. The other thing, Alyssa, when you talked about like moving from Chicago to Mexico, I have done this before where I, I didn't realize a treadmill was on in kilometers per hour and oh, yeah. miles per hour. <laughs> and I was like, you're like, like, oh, I'm so fast. <laughs> yeah. Like 10 kilometers per hour. And I was like, I feel so good. I'm like, I feel awesome. Cause you're running 10 minutes per yeah. mile. And I was like, and I thought I was running like six minutes per mile, quite a difference. Um, I think that can actually be really nice. Cause I did that before one of my races once. And I was like, God, this feels so good. And it took me a little while to figure it out, which you think you would That's notice funny. like a four minute per mile difference. But, um, you know, sometimes I just needed that mental boost that I was running faster than I actually was, but it like made me feel really good. I was like, God, I'm so fit. <laughs> and I had a great race. So I don't think that's always like a bad thing. 
No, no, but probably something good to check into. Yeah. When, yeah if you're going to be there a while. Yeah. Uh, um, but thanks to, thanks Maria. Those are great questions and Haley, we're going to keep them rolling. Are you ready yeah, for the let's next do one? It. I'm okay. ready. So this comes from Laura and uh, Laura did Timberman 70.3. So hopefully that went amazingly. Um, congratulations on that. And, but this is a good question for this episode. It's about um, like brick workouts. So she says after two hours on the bike, her legs felt the best they had ever. Um, this was like her last big brick workout before Timberman 70.3. So she did two hours on the bike. Her legs felt great. And despite feeling great and holding a good pace, her heart rate was up at 180 for all four miles of the run walk. So there was like a new max threshold set for her heart rate. She was like, heart rate was really high coming off of that, even though she was feeling really good. So she's wondering if a zone five heart rate is sustainable for 13 miles of a 70.3, or if she should be slowing down and walking when she like hits a certain heart rate to ensure that she's not going to blow up. Um, or is this just how it feels and she should just kind of go with it. So great question. And I think I did, I respond to, um, Laura a little bit. So we didn't leave her like high and dry for this question before her half Ironman. Um, but I thought it was a good question. So we can, we can take a gander at it here too. Haley, what do you think? Oh, I love this one because I love heart rate. I do a lot of running off of heart rate. And my first question is my first point of this is to make sure like, is that 180 like a reliable number? You know, is this wrist heart rate or chest strap heart rate? I am a huge, huge, huge fan of chest strap because I think it is a lot more accurate, um, than wrist. Like I run with a polar watch and a polar heart rate strap. And I know that there, if I don't wear the chest strap, the differential between like it's wrist is a lot higher, like a lot higher. So if you're looking at wrist, it's more of like trends versus like the actual number. Whereas if I wear the chest strap, I can rely on the actual number. So first is making sure that that is a reliable number. Second, if that really is a 180 and also zone five for her, because I do think, you know, 180 for one person is very different than 180 for another person. Um, but if that is her zone five, 180 reliable number, no, I don't think that's sustainable for 13 miles. No, um, I can sustain zone five for like a minute, I think. So, I mean, it's amazing. She did that for four miles. Um, but I don't think that that is sustainable at all for 13 miles. And you know, I know that the race has already happened and, um, I would say if, I don't know if this is like kind of a off season or she's going to start into base work, but that's when I think like use a chest strap, use a heart rate monitor, get a reliable number. And what I would suggest is like during your base building period, during your off seat, like after your off season, when you're kind of building back, I would really look at that heart rate number and aim to, you know, I would keep it zone, whatever you suggest is your zone two or lower for like every run during that base building, which might be very, very, very slow, like very slow. And, um, but you just have to like, keep it that way. And what you will find is that over time, whatever, you know, that zone two number is, so it will, your pace will get faster at that. And so if we want to like throw out numbers, like I, for myself, like I would run, do runs under 130. Um, I mean, again, my numbers are very different. I, if I did 180, I would be in the ambulance, like dying. <laughs> so, um, so I would do like 130. And I remember when I first started doing this, like, I think I had to run like way slower than 
10 minutes per mile, even though at the time I probably could race it, you know, seven minutes per mile, but I was like slowing way, way down. And I know it was like very frustrating for me and made me very sad because I was going so slow and all this, but it got better. It got a lot, a lot better. And I would say now, like I can, on most days I can run, you know, eight minute pace under 130 beats per minute. And so it does get better, but that's where I would say I would use it to start and then get more into actual workouts and watching your heart rate trends. But, um, you know, assuming you are kind of in off season or base building, like get that, spend a lot, a lot of time at like those lower heart rates until it, I mean, and it might take like six weeks, eight weeks, you know, just to like get to where you can run a, how you feel pretty good keeping that heart rate lower, but you will get a training adaptation and it will pay off. Yeah. I think everything you said is good. And that when I read the question, I too kind of was wondering if she was doing the risk-based heart rate. And like, like you said it perfectly, just that is very indicative of the trends, right? So it might've been possible that that pace that she was going off the bike is like, okay. Right. But like the number is just drastically off because it was like the wrist or whatever. Right. So um, heart rate is a great tool, but you do want to make sure you are using the equipment to like get you accurate information. If you're going to kind of base things off of that, um, number wise and, but other, I should have followed up with Lars to find out exactly what happened, like what she ended up doing. Maybe I will, maybe we'll have that for next week. Um, but I, I think that's great information. And also just the concept of like, putting in that base training does pay off for those races down the line. Right. And it's like a very important part of the process. So, um, hopefully Timberman did go well for Laura and Haley, you ready for question three? This is, this is I'm like, ready. I, wish, I feel like I should have come up with better segues for the mailbag episode, but such is life. So question three, this is a good question. Um, I didn't write down who sent it to us. So maybe I'll find that out while we talk about it. But um, they say, I heard you talk about the new technology that Iron Man says they are rolling out. And I think this was in regard to drafting, right? So um, this person completed 70.3 Chattanooga when they wrote this. So this was, we had this in our mailbag for a little while. And they were sub three on the bike and had a great day despite the heat. I saw no obvious drafting near me other than a guy I had to threaten to get off my wheel a few times. I did hear about other groups of drafters, but I did not witness any. However, there was no way to be six bike lengths apart with over 3000 people on the bike. It's just not possible. Ironman needs either more presence on the course to look for obvious drafting, or they need to reduce the field to under 1500 if they're going to use technology like this. So if the average bike length is 69 inches, then six length is about 35 feet. And with 3000 athletes, that's 20 miles. So yes, like when you start to dig into the numbers of how a race would actually look with everyone out on the bike course, it gets kind of mind blowing, right? So they're wondering, is no one considering this when they are looking for ways to penalize athletes that are just trying to do their own race? And what are our thoughts on this? And this is a great conversation to have going into uh, a race like Kona because Kona is one of those races notorious for, in the age group fields, particularly the drafting problem that occurs. Um, Do you think that's going to happen though with the two days and the, uh, so you know, women a, on one day, men on the other? That's true. And I mean, some men on Thursday, but they're starting pretty far back. I mean, it will be interesting to see it. 
I don't know the number. So like, I don't know if they just have filled both days to approximately like similar amounts of athletes. Right. Cause I do think it kind of comes down to a number equation and I do think, yeah, you would have to really dig in, I think to the times and like swim times and bike times to really extrapolate, like where everyone's going to fall on the spectrum. My <laughs> unscientific thing that I'm just going to broadcast publicly on the podcast would be to say that I do still think it's probably going to be a problem in the men's field because I rarely see men's fields of racing where drafting is not a problem and whether that's like a mathematical formula that they just simply cannot avoid or it's like a human instinct they have when they're riding I don't know but it is certainly a problem that I notice out there when I am (laughs) racing and watching races so um this is a great question and obviously not one that Haley and I are really uh, in a position to be solving, but we can speculate. So we can speculate about if Ironman is doing this math and they're creating courses and figuring out how many courses are allowed or how many athletes are allowed to be racing on a course and what the course design should be. And honestly, my hunch is that they are not speculating about this or they are not thinking about this until after everything's probably set and then maybe they kind of consider it is my hunch just in the way I see things played out um I have also been on the side of event productions before where you know you have to get permits and figure things like safety and all of these like there's a lot of things that come into play when you're designing a course um and particularly with multi-sport it's like even more intense. And so I do assume that folks putting on 70.3s are hopefully mostly concerned with safety, right? And of the athletes as like a number one priority in terms of where the course is going and where the athletes will be. And then I think that in general, because the folks making money from the sport are going to be, you know, mostly off the front, um, and course design won't really affect the number of like pro athletes as much for the drafting problems, though it is, can be an issue, but, um, for the most part, it's not affecting them. I think a lot of the race directors and other people in charge of these races are probably willing to let the age group drafting problem be a problem. Um, for the sake of getting everyone a decent race and, you know, um, yeah, I, I think that it's probably low on the priority list for age group athletes, unfortunately for better or worse. Right. There's like, just that it's like a major conflict of interests, I think between having these races put on safely and like the interests of the race directors versus the interests of athletes who are racing for world championship spots and things like that. Right. Like there's always going to be kind of a budding of heads in terms of interest there. And yeah, but I haven't heard anything more about the technology to use to limit the drafting. So my husband's is like that radar. Yeah, is this like radar rumors of rumors of radar type of things and or no I think maybe even just chips and like timing oh. mats and stuff you know to like check about that but I have a hard time believing they would ever really like I mean they do that's hard too because you don't know if someone's like making a pass yeah, you know that, right. that 20 mile thing one I'm like yeah people are probably spread out over 20 miles you know like it, you know if you all the different abilities and everything but I think you're also always going to have sometimes where people are passing. And so 
you'd have to take that into account. Like if you were actually doing just pure math, um, you know, because people are always going to be passing, there's always going to be some overlap, but I will say in, uh, Montremblant, they actually had some officials on e-bikes so that they were like quiet when, you know, cause I, I think they, I do believe the officials do try to keep intent in mind when they are handing out penalties. So it is like, if someone just accidentally gets a little too close or something like that, but it's like, you know, you've seen the like real, real drafters and they are usually listening for motos. And in Tremblant, they had officials on e-bikes that were just people who, and so you couldn't necessarily like hear them coming. And I don't know, I don't know the stats on if they were able to give out more penalties or anything like that, but I thought that was interesting. And that could be kind of a, an option. I know it's not quite as fast as a, uh, moto, but still pretty fast. I mean, I've been in Arizona and I mean, I've had a couple of times where I've gotten passed by, um, some people on e-bikes and I'm like, what, <laughs> but, um, I'm like, this guy is like crushing lemon and he's like 80 years old. I'm like, go you man. But, um, or I was like going up a hill and I thought I was going to catch someone. And all of a sudden they're like, zip. <laughs> I'm like, never mind. but, um, very popular around here. So maybe that's like a, an option too. If you had a, like a little official groups on e-bikes that you can't necessarily tell our officials until they give you a penalty. Um, at least gets the blatant, the blatant like drafters, but it's always, I think it's going to be a, a problem in our sport a little bit. And so hopefully, you know, we just have to race with integrity and aim to keep that legal distance and stay safe, as you mentioned, and make those passes within 25 seconds and follow the rules. But it and is it's hard. Like, I think thing. it's important to know if you're racing in the age group field, like, especially where I know when I was racing age group and, you know, I was a average swimmer and then, but I was above average for my bike and my run. And, you know, that was often tough because I would come out of the water in a, you know, around a lot of people. And so I was often in the crowds racing and trying to work my way up and, I didn't get a lot of drafting penalties, but I certainly got a few, um, both in my amateur and pro career. I think I got a couple as a pro. Um, and I think it's just important to like, not, uh, you know, the officials are doing the best they can. And they, I think, you know, as a pro, I was able to get to kind of interact with the officials a little bit more than I did it as an amateur and kind of understand some of the rules and how they're enforcing them. And you know, they're not out to just get people. And I think they understand that the course makeups a lot of times just don't help our situation, but, um, you know, they're doing the best they can. And sometimes I think it's important to know that they are just seeing like a snapshot and making the best judgment call that they can in those times. So, um, but just know, you know, just because if you get a penalty, it doesn't mean you're like, you know, not, you're like a bad person or a bad athlete. I think that, you know, it's like traumatic sometimes when you get your first penalty for, for people, but, um, you know, just serve the penalty and try and learn about what you did. And then next time, like, you know, sometimes it, it requires you to race a little bit differently when you're in the packs as an age grouper, but try it. Right. And like, that's, that's our sport. So, Mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of an important thing, you know, to, to understand that we're, just trying to do the best we can with what it is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, no, exactly. And yeah, it's, it's a ongoing dilemma, but I think that's a good, good answer. And I'll keep a close eye on the coverage so we can analyze how it is <laughs> this year with the split days. Um, next questions, Haley, come in from the one and only Wong star. 
And she has swimming questions for Haley and then running questions for me. So, um, Haley, are you ready for your, I'm ready for some question. Yeah. Question. So she has time for two swim sessions a week. One is a weekly open water swim and one is a pool swim, both about 45 minutes. How can she maximize these swim sessions? Um, what's the best way to get the most out of an open water swim workout? She likes to just swim at long, easy, like a distance run, like a long, slow distance run, but, uh, she feels like she's swimming slow because she trains slow. So we are talking to the Wong star who has over 20 years of triathlon experience. So she's good at sighting, you know, she's not needing open. She's not needing more open water, like experience in that sense. So wants to just start to get like a lot of bang for her buck. And what do you think, Haley? Yeah, I would say for the pool swim, I would definitely prioritize like a speed session or like a faster session in the pool, because in the pool, you have a very controlled environment. You assuming you have a clock, you have lane lines, flags, like you can probably, so I would say even maybe like short warm up and then do some like intervals. I don't know exactly if you're training for a sprint distance, you might be doing like fifties and hundreds fast, just like training for that. But I mean, even a sprint distance, you're swimming pretty far. So, um, or like do, you know, two hundreds, four hundreds on short rest so that you are like really maximizing those 45 minutes. And so I guess if you could do, you know, even like 1500 pretty fast on short rest, like you're going to get like a good training benefit from that. And I think that, you know, and get it done in 45 minutes. So that's what I would suggest for the pool, you know, make that a harder session with or or maybe you do a, you know, you have a day where you do some fast fifties with a little bit more rest, but prioritize the speed when you're in the pool, the harder session when you're in the pool, because it's a little bit easier and you have that controlled environment. I would say depending the open water, like some weeks I would use it as a recovery swim, you know, like you can just get out there. If I mean, 45 minutes open water is pretty long. I think actually like you are going to like, you know, feel that because turns in a pool are a rest. And so that is going to be like, it is almost like a long, easy distance run. So I say some weeks of that, I do think, you know, one of the nice things, how I will split up open water swim. Sometimes I'll do, if it's assuming you're, you know, can do an out and back, um, negative split it like, so swim easy on the way out as your warm up, and then try to come back faster. If there's a current that can be a little hard, but, um, but sometimes that's good. So depending on your conditions, um, the other thing form swim goggles are one of our sponsors. I think that those can help if you have a, you know, the clock in your swim goggle, um, you can, I'll do like, you know, do a little warm up and then do like two minute intervals, like two minutes steady, two minutes at, you know, Ironman race pace, two minutes at 70.3 race pace. And then you could do like a four minute easy. So it's like a six minute, there's like a six minute, uh, little set there. And so you, if you have formed some goggles, you can actually like see that in your gasket. If you don't have those, I've done it before where I, um, you know, if you can, even if you just have like a, a Timex watch, if you can set like a two minute timer, it will beep. And so you don't have to actually look at it. Cause that is a little bit hard sometimes depending on your water quality to actually see your watch. So you can, you know, do a set like that, but I mean, you could do anything, but if you just do two minutes and you just set a two minute timer and you know, when that beeps, you go, you know, you change your pace. So I think that, you know, you can do some of those, but I would, um, you know, again, depending on your training and everything, but faster in the pool, more of a distance run in open water. I think that will, she'll get the most bang for her buck with her two swims a week. And Haley, she also had 
a running question for me, which is a tip, not that you're not able to give running tips, but (laughs) her question is specifically about the JFK 50 mile, which she has done twice before, but she's coming back from a knee injury this year and is only planning to build to a 30 mile or 50 K longest run while mixing it in with biking and swimming. So she was wondering if I had any tips for training and racing JFK and Jocelyn, I do, um, two things. So if your trail time is limited, I highly recommend doing some like footwork drills, um, like on a, like a, I get like an agility ladder. Um, and you can do just like a basic, usually if you buy an agility ladder, it comes with this like little booklet of drills you can do in it. And just like little footwork drills, um, on the agility ladder, do them like two to three times a week for, I mean, five or 10 minutes. They're very quick. Um, I think it's very helpful if your trail time is limited because JFK does have like some decent technical aspects and rocks and stuff in that trail section that you start with there. So if you can't get onto trails to do some of that, doing the footwork required to like move efficiently through trails is really helpful for that. And then I think JFK is one of, I mean, all a lot of ultras are like this, but is a very high mental toughness race because you do the trail section and then you have 26 miles on a flat towpath and then you have 10 miles of road running to finish, right? So it's like mental toughness, mind over matter for the like last 35 miles basically. Um, And so anything you can do to help build that mental toughness, I think is really helpful. I would even consider like a doing that 30, like I would do, I don't know if I would do 30 miles on the treadmill, but I would do a treadmill Mm. marathon maybe to build the mental toughness and get in the miles for that long run that you're going to do to like do it. Um, or just doing some other long runs on the treadmill when your legs are tired and really just embracing how boring it could be, um, is very helpful for JFK, I think. Um, and then you can remind yourself as you're running on the towpath for hours that, this is like actually better than the treadmill situation that you got yourself into in training, because at least it's not staring at a blank gym wall. Right. So, um, you know, I think either of those are some pretty good ways to get prepped for JFK, but JFK is so fun. Um, so I can't wait to, it's so fun. It's just like running a treadmill marathon. (laughs) I'm like, Oh my goodness. I love the treadmill, but Whoa, that is next level. Um, all right, Haley, we have another question from Emily, who is a beginner triathlete. She's finished a few races and time to dial in her gear. So she's constantly fumbling through transition and is curious about what the most efficient thing to wear is. So right now she's doing tri shorts and a bathing suit top. And then she puts a shirt on after she gets out of the water, but she got really tied up in her shirt the last race because she was trying to you know, put on a shirt while she was still wet. So she's wondering if there's like a better option. And then also in terms of wetsuits, she got a very discounted $5 wetsuit. That's a deal. Um, That's but a deal. it's starting to let in water. So she's wondering if she should get something new. She didn't have a problem. Oh, she has like a, so that was a full arm wetsuit for five bucks. I'm very curious about what this wetsuit is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel wondering... like just one arm, the neoprene has to cost more than $5. I feel like just like, like two inches of a wetsuit has to cost $5, yeah. but yeah, that is a good um, deal. But so she's curious, like now she's in the market for a wetsuit. Should she get one sleeveless or with arms? What are the advantages, etc. So, okay. Let's tackle the, what to wear question first. So you have a few options and people go a lot of different ways. So I think you and I both 
choose usually to race similarly. We wear tri shorts, a sports bra, and then an arrow top. Um, cause we're both sponsored by smash fest queen. And so that's kind of the combo I think Haley and I both use. And then I often run, I, I guess we both kind of, I think pick based on the weather, how we're feeling if we like run in the arrow top, or if we take it off and just run in the sports bra and try shorts. Um, but essentially the sports bra in my mind is like a bathing suit top. Like those are interchangeable mm-hmm. in my mind. So, um, you can definitely just be like swimming in that and then, and you can swim in the arrow top as well. So you don't need to worry about putting something on when you're wet, because yes, that's impossible and you will get tangled up. Um, that's what I've been racing in recent years. And before arrow tops were a thing, I just wore like a tank, tank, tri top, mm-hmm. <laughs> tank, tri top. Um, and same thing. I would swim in that, just wear that through the whole thing and found that to be very pretty comfortable. And I liked that as well. Although I do like the arrow top because it gives me the option to run in just the sports bra. And I do really like having like sometimes the option to wear as little clothes as possible on the run. Um, I have never raced in a one piece suit. Haley, have you ever raced in a one piece suit? No, I haven't. Um, I like how they look. I, I really do like running in a sports bra only. And I do that in pretty much every weather. I have never, I have yet to be in a situation where I'm too cold on the run. And so I, I let, but I, like you said, I do swim in the arrow top. And so that's something, you know, you want to try to get used to and make sure it's tight enough that it's not creating a lot of extra drag, but I swim in the arrow top and then um, take it off, but in between the bike and the run, the full suit, I think is, you know, that is nice. You can swim, bike and run the whole thing. And, um, I guess you could pull it down. I get nervous. I, I, I often have bathroom stops on the run. And so I think that's where, um, the, the full suit, you know, makes me a little nervous, but I probably would end up pulling it down halfway anyway. And, because I do like, I just like have, I have really broad shoulders. And so sometimes just having that like freedom of movement on everybody is good. So I don't know what kind of uh, shirt Emily put on after she got out of the water. So my thought was is either, you know, if it's like a, if you need the pockets, so you're putting on like a bike Jersey, you know, think about an arrow top to add on. Um, the one downside, if you don't need pockets, you probably could ride in just the tri shorts and a bathing suit top. You know, if it's a sports bra type top, um, you don't have as much sun protection doing that. So that's another thing that with the longer sleeves of an arrow top, they do provide a lot of sun protection when you're on the bike, because that is when you can get really, really burnt. And so, um, that's where the shirt is nice. You get, you have some pockets and then you also do have sun protection. And so, but if you're doing a short enough race and it's not like, crazy sunny just skip the shirt and ride in your sports bra and then for wetsuits I I've always been so with wetsuits you do get what you pay for generally speaking unless you found the deal of the century with the five buck one so (laughs) um chances are like looking at full sleeve suits they can get pretty expensive. And that is like, I found as someone who really is bothered by like shoulder mobility I like really you know, I've been most comfortable in wetsuits that are generally pretty expensive because they're very well-crafted in the shoulders. They give a lot of shoulder mobility and it's just like, it does make a difference. Um, I have found like you kind of get what you pay for with the wetsuits. Um, but if you treat them well, they will last a very long time. That's also a thing. Um, so I did for a lot of years, just wear before I wanted to invest in a good wetsuit, I wore a sleeveless one because it was 
um, more affordable. I was more comfortable in that than buying like a really stiff one on my shoulders. And I found that I actually was like swimming really well with just a sleeveless, sleeveless one on. And if you're not doing a super cold race with water, I would say like if water's below, I don't know, you could wear it to 60 degrees. If it's below 60, you definitely probably want a full, full sleeve wetsuit, um, 65 and under, maybe some people do. It depends on your cold water tolerance, right? Like a lot of that, but I know plenty of athletes who are certainly more comfortable in having their arms free. Um, but you know, the science behind wetsuits is like full sleeves are in theory faster. Right. But that does, I think, depend very much so on if you're comfortable and it fits you well. So, um, it's hard these days to like try on wetsuits. So if you are going to any races and there's expos, I totally encourage people to try them on there and like set aside time when you're not going to be sweaty showing up at the expo to try on wetsuits, right? Like really plan around that, but it's a really great time to get your hands on them, get in it, see if it's a good build and like fit for you. Um, and then you could kind of maybe make the call between sleeves or not as well, based on like how much you want to spend, what kind of races you're doing and things like that. Yeah. I agree with all the above. I mean, I, yeah, sleeves are faster, but, and it, it just depends on the race you're doing too. If you're doing one with a downriver swim, um, it's probably going to be less of an advantage to have sleeves, but yeah, if you're uncomfortable, it's definitely not an advantage, even though it is faster, but I know it's hard. I think some try shops like, um, have demo you know, ones or something. Yeah. They might have yeah. demo ones, but I don't, yeah. This store that she got her $5 wetsuit closed, unfortunately, <laughs> but yeah, it is, you know, but, and wetsuits do usually last several seasons. Like that is one nice thing that, so it might be worth the investment to spend a little bit. And sometimes you can get good sales. So I would like, you know, watch for those, uh, you know, end of the season sales, that kind of thing where you're getting last year's model, but it's still going to be a great wetsuit. So do, you know, if, if you figure out what you want, then start watching for the sales and you might be able to snag something, maybe not $5, but um, still a pretty good wetsuit. And I don't know if wetsuit, I feel like I use like wetsuitrental.com or something for my first few races. Yeah. That was like a pretty big thing. I feel like in our age group days, and you could definitely do that. I mean, the, the tip, there's always a tipping point, right? If you went rent a wetsuit several times, it's like, okay, you should just put that money maybe towards buying it. But if you are using it to rent and like try a few different options so that you really are purchasing one that you'll love and it fits you well and you'll use for a while, it's totally worth it. So I don't know that's if that's a still great, exists, but you could it, does. it does. One of my okay, athletes yeah. has used yeah. that in the last year. So yeah. I know someone who has used that, but that is a great tip. And okay, Haley, our last mailbag question, and you're probably like most of the way through your oatmeal now over in Kona. So, um, this is came in from Maria again. She had another question from for us and her and her husband are avid mountain bikers. And it's like an important time for them because it's like a quality, you know, date type of situation that they get to spend together every week. So we like the mountain biking for that reason. We're keeping it in. Uh, but she's worried it's starting to conflict with her triathlon training for the up that upcoming Olympic race. They ride every Saturday at a park that has a crazy hour and a half climb whew, to get to the top. And then you get to do the downhill trails. Um, and sometimes they kind of repeat through like a halfway point and stuff. So she's curious how mountain bike riding translates to triathlon training tips for balancing both Does climbing on the mountain bike count. Um, and this is like all coming to a head. It sounds like, because she wants to do everything. So she has the group ride on Fridays with her regular cycling, cycling group. Um, but that sometimes leaves her too sore for the mountain bike adventures with her husband on Saturday. 
And then sometimes she's too sore from that to do the long ride or something on the next day. So basically she's like getting sore from all of the riding and trying to figure out how to balance it. Um, and this is a fun question. And Haley, I'm sure you have athletes who are mixing in mountain biking. We've talked to several um, Xterra athletes this season. And that's actually usually a question I've tried to ask them too, because it has been something I have been figuring out for myself over the past year, year and a half or so as I've been mountain biking more. Um, so Maria, I definitely encourage you to maybe like scan through our feed for Xterra interviews for that. Um, but my main, so there's a lot of dynamics here, right? So there's the dynamic of wanting to spend quality time with your partner. There's the dynamic of wanting to do the best training possible. And I kind of would approach this as like, I don't know, there's a lot of ways to approach it, but I would say you have to get yourself to sit down and like give yourself an honest opinion of what's the most important thing for your, for you, right? Like goal wise. And so if that is like, you want to do the best you can possibly do for that Olympic race on October 15th, um, maybe the mountain biking isn't the best thing to be like going all out in right now. Um, and it might require you to prioritize some of the other riding. So, and running so that you're like, not getting super sore from the mountain bike riding. Um, it sounds like it's more of like just a bad combination the way all the days are lining up. Like if you could move the mountain biking to maybe like Tuesday with your husband, right? Or something like that. I feel like you could space it out and kind of do a little bit of both. But um, I feel like you sent in this question, Maria, last month, but now that we're airing it, I mean, October 15th is almost here. So like that problem will almost be solved. And then hopefully in the off season, you can maybe prioritize the mountain biking a little bit more. Um, I have found that specifically mountain biking is, um, you know, where I am. I use it a lot as like really hard, short intervals because that's the type of terrain we, I'm mostly riding where I am. Um, but for like a long climb where you're not going to be going like as hard as you possibly can right, for 90 minutes, um, or if you can like control it so that you're not, I definitely think like the strength building from doing that translates to the triathlon training and just building strength for cycling in general. So, um, so, you know, all is not lost just because you're mountain biking, but I do think you're going to have to prioritize maybe like your effort that you're putting in at each session and like thinking through if the Olympic distance is your main priority putting the effort in towards there. And maybe, maybe you can have, do what Matt and I do. He has a toe on his bike for adventure racing. And then your husband could like tow you up the climb so that you're not having to work as hard. And then oh gosh, I didn't know that existed. Um, I like did not know that was a thing. I mean, it depends a lot on the terrain you're riding and how technical that uphill would be. But if it's like a Jeep road or something, you totally, <laughs> totally good. Um, awesome. <laughs> but, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's tricky. Right. And it's, it's hard because we want to do all of the things, but I think that there's always a season, right? And if you remind yourself that like after the race, then, you know, you can focus more on the mountain biking and things like that. And it doesn't matter if you're like a little more sore and lagging behind the other group rides. Um, that's okay. So, so I don't know. What do you, what do you tell your athletes who have this conundrum, Haley? Yeah, I absolutely think mountain bike climbs count like that fitness is fitness. And then I would just say maybe like, and I also think like the enjoyment, it sounds like she gets a lot of enjoyment from mountain biking with her husband. And I think that's important. You have to be having fun in the sport to continue it. 
Um, I would say like pick, you know, look at a calendar and like, look at your Saturdays. And then as you get closer to the race, um, that's when you maybe want to prioritize riding on your tri bike. And so very similar to what you said, seasons, like early on, you're getting base aerobic fitness. I don't think it really matters as much, which bike you're on, but as you get closer to the race, I would try to prioritize that. And so again, you don't have to do like for four weeks out every single ride on your tri bike, but, or your road bike, but maybe, um, you know, three out of four of your weekends are more, um, prioritizing that the bike you're going to be racing your triathlon on. And then one of them is like, okay, let's have fun with on the mountain bike and still get a good workout in, but you're, you know, that that weekend is going to be mountain bike as priority. And so and if there's, maybe there's a weekend that, you know, your husband doesn't want to ride and that's perfect. I'm going to go do the group ride and be sore from that. So I think that sometimes like looking at a calendar, planning things out will help manage all the expectations for yourself, for everyone around you, and just kind of focus that. And like you said, knowing it is temporary and once the race is over, you can do all the mountain biking you want. I love it. All right, Haley. Well, this is wrapping up our mailbag bonanza episode. And on that note, I'm ready to um, turn my attention to the spectating of the World Championships Ironman that you're participating in. I'm very excited for you to be doing this. Thank you in advance um, for the virtual cheers. Yes, I appreciate so it. <laughs> everyone listening, if you're listening on Thursday, make sure you are sending all the good thoughts Haley's way, sending cool thoughts and tailwinds, of course, um, but a really hard swim. We want this one to be really hard. So the, yeah, um, but thanks to everyone who sent in their questions. Keep sending in your mailbag questions to ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com and we'll continue to answer them throughout episodes coming up. But Haley, enjoy the last of Tucson. Safe travels out to Kona. Good luck. And I'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, Alyssa. I'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to the Iron Women podcast hosted by Haley Chura and Alyssa Gadeski. Iron Women is a production of Feisty Media and is edited by Amelia Perry and produced by Ellen Etitian. Head to livefeisty.com to find more podcasts, events, stories, and fresh perspectives. Thanks for listening.